the UN declared Srebrenica as a safe haven, but in fact sold it to the Bosnian Serbs who were turning it slowly into a legal extermination camp. They are deciding on which materials to come in, so they are the managers of all relief programs. The UN and the humanitarian organizations only function as a cheap labor force for them. They run a farm of 45,000 people with a Serbian manager who is only interested in getting rid of his animals. Those damning words are written by MSF field coordinator Anz Olenz in the autumn of 1993. Earlier in the year, Anz had worked in the enclave and seen firsthand just how bad life was getting there. As we heard in episode one, the Muslim population trapped inside Srebrenica had been living under constant shelling since the start of the war in Bosnia in 1992. Even after the UN declared the city a safe area in March 1993, not much had changed. As Anz Olenz notes, When UNPROFOR arrived in March, people thought it was the end of the nightmare and there was a general optimism. This optimism turns into bitterness now. Everybody realises that the tragedy is not far off. When the joint French-Belgium MSF unit entered Srebrenica with UNPROFOR leader General Morion last March, they were the first NGO allowed inside the enclave. There, they witnessed the French general vowing to protect the enclave's population. Now, half a year on, that MSF team is focusing on providing medical care, securing the water supply and sanitation, and preparing the enclave for the upcoming winter. But they're starting to question how much protection the UN peacekeepers in the enclave can actually provide. As the violence worsens inside Srebrenica, the living conditions also deteriorate for the people imprisoned there. How much longer can they hold on? MSF continues to support the staff in the local hospital, but as the siege drags on, some wonder whether they are really just like prison doctors. Are they helping the Bosnian Serb strategy by providing medical aid in the besieged city? Worse still, are they softening the Bosnian Serbs' image? And as the Bosnian Serb authorities tighten their grip on Srebrenica, MSF is faced with another dilemma. Would calling for the evacuation of civilians be the equivalent of abetting the Bosnian Serbs' ethnic cleansing policy of driving out all Muslim inhabitants and claiming the land, even if those same civilians want to leave? I'm Nick Owen. This is Médecins Sans Frontières, speaking out, Srebrenica. Today, we say enough. Even war has rules. Stop the bombing of defenseless civilians in Chechnya. There will be a scientific uh, research for that. We know that those people are dying. Episode 2, Prison Doctors. Graziella Godin takes over from Anz as MSF's field coordinator in Srebrenica in October 1993. That winter, MSF is the only source of medical care in the enclave. In 1993, the main difficulty was being able to obtain medicines. We had managed to bring in a large stock that year, and then for almost six months, we had nothing. We only got new stock in March 94, and so it was difficult to provide medical treatment. 
We managed to get by with supplies from the Blue Helmets, who helped us several times, so we were able to bring in small quantities. Each time, we had to go to the checkpoints to negotiate with a captain and try to get the medicines and supplies into the enclave. And each time, he would tell us that he'd do his best. But he'd always ask us why we were there. What was the point of being there? And he would always add that these Muslims had to be got rid of. We negotiated every day. Whenever snipers shot at us, the captain would say that he couldn't control them, which was obviously not true, as they were under his command. Every time we understood that they'd go all the way and wouldn't let go of this enclave, we saw that they obviously wanted to get rid of the Bosniaks who were living there as refugees. But life inside the enclave with the Bosnian Muslim militias is no less violent. There was a strange atmosphere in the enclave, since there were 45,000 refugees, and among them were the Bosnian militias who continued to fight and continued, often in a rather radical way, to carry out commando operations in the Serb villages at the border of the enclave. Every time they entered the observation posts or the Serb areas, there were reprisals and shootings at civilians in the enclave. We spoke with the commander and explained the risk they were putting civilians under. But for them, it was all about fighting the Bosnian Serbs and protecting the refugees. But no one listened. Everyone had their own objectives. Ours was to protect the population and provide medical treatment. And theirs was to free the enclave and, above all, to defeat the Bosnian Serbs and keep this territory. It's late 1993, and the Dutch battalion, or Dutchbat as they're known, are due to take over from the Canadians as the Unprofor peacekeepers in the Srebrenica and Zeppa enclaves. But Unprofor delays the handover under pressure from the Serbs. When the Dutch finally arrive in March 1994, they set up their base at a village called Potocari. It's about five kilometres outside Srebrenica, but still inside the enclave. This village will play a key role later in the war. The MSF team on the ground are impressed by Dutch Bat's equipment and supplies. They assume that security is getting beefed up and that the Dutch are preparing for the long haul to protect the enclave. All the while, the haggling continues between MSF and the Bosnian Serb authorities in Palais. They're demanding that MSF provide aid to the Serbian parts of Bosnia-Herzegovina, as well as to the Muslims. In exchange, they say they'll let the MSF teams and equipment into the enclaves. This sparks intense debate within MSF. What position should they take as an organisation? On one hand, MSF is reluctant to offer any support to the Bosnian Serbs, but on the other, getting access and supplies to people in Srebrenica is absolutely essential. Graciela Diap is the medical coordinator. All we knew was that in order to get medicines into the enclave, we had to do a distribution in Republic Srpska. But there are always ways, and then there are ways. There was an in-depth discussion on the project, which everyone considered a pretext project. When I got there, I said, we shouldn't do an alibi project. I'm going to conduct a visit. Sometimes we do projects simply because it's very important that we be there with the population. But that wasn't the case there. 
after a year of doing the project, we found shampoo bottles and packages of compresses with MSF labels in the shops in Serbian hospitals. President of MSF France, Dr. Roni Broman, sets out the larger picture and the clear differences in opinion within MSF over the best way forward. Il est évident pour nous que les Serbes tiraient un bénéfice politique. It was obvious to us that the Serbs were deriving a political benefit from our presence in Srebrenica. But there were differences in analysis between MSF France and MSF Belgium on the issues of relations with the Serbs. MSF Belgium felt it had to buy their presence in Srebrenica in a certain way. You can agree or disagree, but that solution didn't satisfy us. We were under the impression that the Serbs were quite happy with our presence in Srebrenica because it worked in favour of their public image. So there was something like a restoration of public image and that was why there was also the UN Protection Force, the UNHCR and the ICRC. But they were only there in a very formal way because they made short weekly visits Whereas we, we had a continuous presence on our side. Ronnie Broman travels with MSF Belgium to Palais to visit the Republic of Srpska government. In the spring of 94, I went with a delegation from MSF Belgium for a discussion about the continuity of our access to the enclaves and the distribution of hygiene and basic necessities in Serbian villages. It was a kind of exchange. The problem with those Serbian villages was that they were Bosnian villages that had now been somehow Serbianized. That still posed a difficult ethical problem, and so we arrived in Pale to discuss this. Pale was a ski resort, it probably still is, and the government of the self-proclaimed Republika Serbska, the Serbian Republic, had set up its residence in a hotel there. The discussion started before dinner with some clear and slightly heavy but very diplomatic hints to people who took positions hostile to Serbian rights. These allusions were clearly made in my direction, but no one reacted, either from our side nor from the Serbian delegation, and everyone played their cards rather discreetly and elegantly. Well, they did at first. Tensions are running high and the negotiations are by no means straightforward. There are plenty of rumours flying around on both sides. It was after this, let's say, courteous introduction that the bulk of the matter came to light. Namely, the plan to exterminate Bosnian Serb children. In other words, a genocide organized by the United Nations. No one had ever heard of that, at least not on our side. And I was surprised to hear several people, good people, highly educated people who had traveled, who were very well informed, and who perhaps didn't seem very convinced of what they were saying, but who kept repeating the crazy accusation that UNICEF was sending measles vaccines, which were poisoned. It was for them a moment of conspiracy, of the global plot 
to get rid of the Serbian people. Neither I nor the other members of the MSF Belgium delegation believed for a moment this sort of madness, that UNICEF wanted to exterminate Serbian children. It was totally insane. But it was also quite disconcerting because we were faced with the enormity of an accusation that contrasted with the apparent calm and somewhat mechanical tone that was used to set out the facts. So I, as perhaps the oldest member of the delegation, and then, because I wanted to respond to that, I assured them that Médecins Sans Frontières would put all its resources at their disposal if the information they had given us was verified. The only thing I asked them to do was to give us the vials so that we ourselves could analyse them independently. And if we found the same results, we would launch a campaign against the people responsible for these horrors and we would sound the alarm without hesitation. This response seemed to satisfy everyone and almost instantly we changed the subject and went from genocide to discussing a sort of shopping list that represented their demands. That's toilet paper, cotton, sanitary towels, in short, the sort of shopping list you'd take to your local shops. There were hardly any medicines on the lists they gave us, and of course we never received the samples that needed to be tested. That's where the story ended, but it's still in my memory. A big moment of kitschy victimhood, if I have to say so myself. In the end, MSF agrees to supply hygiene products to Bosnian Serb villages in exchange for access to the enclaves. In late March, Bosnian Serb forces bomb the Gorazde enclave continuously for an entire month. The two MSF volunteers in the city give first-hand accounts of the dire situation there, and MSF publicly condemns the constant shelling. Several weeks later, NATO launches airstrikes on Bosnian Serb positions around Gorazde. It's the first time American fighters have carried out an aerial attack on Bosnian soil, and to dissuade them from doing it again, the Bosnian Serb forces take a group of UN peacekeepers hostage. It's a critical moment, and later on, it will have repercussions for the position the international community takes towards Srebrenica. But for now, the international community tries to negotiate another ceasefire. First of all, the Bosnian Muslim and Croatian authorities come together and form a Bosniak-Croat federation. Then, on the 26th of April, a contact group is created, focusing on Bosnia-Herzegovina. The group includes France, Germany, Russia, the United States and the United Kingdom, and the aim is to work on diplomatic efforts towards a sustainable peace deal. In early July, this contact group proposes to divide Bosnia-Herzegovina into two new areas. 51% of the territory will go to the recently formed Bosniak-Croat Federation and 49% to the Bosnian Serbs. The Serbs reject it. It's now the middle of September and the Bosnian Serb forces are again tightening the siege of Srebrenica. An already terrible situation is becoming even worse. By now, 80% of the 23,000 people trying to survive in Srebrenica are refugees from Muslim villages taken by the Serbs. Eric Stobatz is the general coordinator for the joint French-Belgian MSF team in the enclaves. 
In November, he speaks to Agence France Presse about what he calls prisons open to the sky. The situation in Srebrenica has changed dramatically compared to what it was a year ago. And what was very obvious just by pure observation of the population was that the people inside the enclave were stuck with a sense of despair because until then they had somehow decided to stay, to survive, to make a political point to the division of Bosnia as a multi-ethnic state. The population were having difficulties practically as well because the convoys were not entering anymore. So definitely something was changing and that was affecting directly the status and the health of people. And that's where we started, I think, as MSF to question, to feel that we were becoming doctors of a prison. An open-air prison, but definitely a prison. And that was changing the sort of the mandate of a humanitarian organization in its very essence. And I think back in Palais, the purpose was to put the population under an extreme pressure, but not to the point of creating an, an epidemic, an outbreak or a famine. And we could see that if nothing would change by December, we'd have a major problem. At this stage, a UN resolution is complicating the situation. Resolution 943 leaves logistical and sanitation materials on the list of embargo goods that aren't allowed into the enclaves. This is despite the fact that they're vital in preparing the cities for winter. MSF expresses its concerns to the UN Security Council and again prepares a statement for the press. Throughout the autumn of 1994, MSF continues to talk to the media and release statements on the deteriorating conditions in the enclaves. Over a year on, and they're still the only non-governmental organisation allowed in. By December, the work of the joint Belgian-French MSF team in Srebrenica is at a standstill. The, the fact that we had almost nothing on shelves, we had no fuel, we, had, uh, you know, we couldn't even sustain our own team inside, not to say even trying to get uh, them out. We were stuck even to get in and out, so I could not visit Srebrenica anymore, I couldn't get the team out. So that was a message that we were given that, you know, get out of here. Obviously, we are stubborn as MSF, so we did not, and I'm glad we did not, but we had to do something differently. First, we had to find ways to refurbish a little bit the pharmacy and make sure that essential items would get into the enclaves. So I turned up to the headquarters and asking for two things, a, a change in the way we would be operating and moving, socializing the idea that we could maybe re-engage in the question of airdrops, which we had abandoned because it was such a mess and creating so much victims when the UN were airdropping. It was so much against our philosophy of work, but I was so desperate, I thought it would be a way to at least get something inside. And at the same time, as we sort of sorted the very, very short term, in the midterm, make a change by speaking out and creating a campaign or saying something about what was happening to global media. Because you had a bit of an awkward situation. As we were able to get things into Goresh Day, we were unable to move into Srebrenica, which had been the reverse situation a year ago. We had been extremely loud and vocal around Goresh Day. So I thought it's time now to do that for Srebrenica. 
Four days later, MSF sends a press release to Western correspondents in Belgrade. It tells of another wave of Muslim refugees that have recently arrived in Tuzla, one of the UN's so-called safe areas north of Srebrenica. These people are yet more victims of the ongoing ethnic cleansing. The statement doesn't go down well with the Bosnian Serbs. They retaliate by refusing to let medical convoys into the enclaves. They also ramp up their demands of what MSF needs to provide in their territory in exchange for allowing relief convoys through. But MSF refuses to give aid without going in to assess the situation beforehand. Dr. Graciela Diap is the MSF Belgium-France medical coordinator for the former Yugoslavia at the time. We brought the list of medicines we wanted to distribute to the Bosnian Serbs leaders and they told us, OK, we are going to do 70-30, meaning 70% for Serbs and 30% for Bosniaks. We reply then, we didn't talk about percentages, but about needs. We told them what situation we found in Republic Serbska and what supplies we plan on providing. Then we told them what the situation was on the other side and gave them the list of medicines we felt we needed to deliver. Then began the clearance procedure, total bureaucracy. We needed a clearance for the lorry and one for the driver and one for the person accompanying the delivery, one for the medicines we were transporting and one for the date. Most of the time, we would have everything ready and the clearances would be denied. Once I remember, the person in charge was in the process of signing the infamous clearance when I saw a big mushroom cloud erupting through the window behind him. It was the first NATO airstrike. The guy turned around, picked up the paper and ripped it to shreds. I felt like crying. On the 12th of February 1995, the president of MSF France and MSF Belgium's general director write a letter to the UN and to every single international leader who might possibly be able to put pressure on the Bosnian Serb authorities. For more than three months, they write, our organisation has been refused access to supply the enclaves with medicine and medical supplies. They point to the arbitrary confiscation of humanitarian supplies from MSF relief convoys, while highlighting that the limited number of UN food convoys also risks severe malnutrition and creating a general weakening of the civilian population. They continue, the problems mentioned above clearly indicate the denial of humanitarian principles as stated in the Geneva Convention and the various UN resolutions on the protection of the so-called safe areas. The responses to their letter are not promising. Thank you for your letter. This information is most useful with regard to our... The Russian Federation is deeply concerned. The Security Council has been made aware of this matter and issued a number of... President Your information would, therefore, best be made directly to the five governments... We have little leverage over the Bosnian Serbs. We will, however, continue to call for the unhindered flow of humanitarian aid throughout Bosnia. While fighting breaks out pretty much everywhere in Bosnia-Herzegovina in early 1995, questions are again raised at MSF about the organisation's role in the enclaves. Staff are worn down and exhausted after long rotations providing care inside the besieged cities. One board member even said, 
Isn't MSF like the condemned person's last meal? MSF Belgium's in-house morning update reports. In the enclaves, the situation is desperate. The people really are imprisoned and have lost all hope. Dying means nothing to them anymore. In conclusion, we absolutely must start talking about the enclaves again and be more aggressive in our public statements. MSF's general coordinator in the region, Eric Stobarts, is beginning to think many of the foreign military leaders, diplomats and journalists who are on the ground in the former Yugoslavia are resigning themselves to the idea that the enclaves are stopping the peace process. I think what was interesting was the response of UN Profor and uh, General uh, Rupert Smith in Sarajevo about my offer to re-establish airdropping on Srebrenica. So I did come with figures to him. So they had an exact situation of the epidemiology of what was happening inside the range of a famine and potential outbreak because we had not even aspirins on the shelves. Literally, that was my quote. And literally, the quote that I had from General Smith was, we will not start a third world war because of a lack of aspirin in Srebrenica, unquote. So that was the gentleman I had had several contacts. It was not the first time I talked to him. So there was a certain um, companionship in the hardship. And I thought I would get support from the UN profile, which I did not. At the time, I found the, the comment extremely cynical and arrogant. But I, it's only now that I realized that the comment was much deeper in between the lines. It was saying something, which was basically that they had abandoned any hope of peace process in Bosnia, and peace would only come at the cost of something. Eric Stobarts writes a damning report in the April issue of Contact, MSF Belgium's in-house newsletter. It goes to the heart of the matter and poses direct questions about MSF's role in Srebrenica and more widely in Bosnia. I finished my assignment in Yugoslavia after almost two years, very tired, obviously, it's uh, draining to stay such a long period in emergency, but also extremely frustrated. There was a fatigue around Bosnia, Eastern Bosnia particularly. There was a fatigue after Goraj Day, there was fatigue with the peace process. Everybody was bored with Yugoslavia, that's the fact. We were not at MSF, but there was nothing happening on the military front. So that was not really attracting the sort of the gory interest of media times, you know. Uh, but what was happening was very telling because just before I left, so around February, I paid a last visit in Srebrenica. You know, there was no authority, elected authority in Srebrenica because obviously people were all displaced, uh, but they had sort of organized themselves and you had the sort of the civil authority, which was uh, in the person of the mayor of Srebrenica. Knowing I was leaving, he came forward and, you know, to say thank you to the work we had done, but now they wanted something else. They wanted to go and join the rest of their families in central Bosnia. Remember, central Bosnia is stabilizing. There's a bit of an economical surge. People, you know, shops are reopening. People are starting to go back to a sort of normalcy. So I have this witness strongly in my soul until today, uh, which I try to transmit. Now, I have also the other witness, which is the sort of the parallel military authority within the enclave, because of course people had organized themselves to defend themselves. They kept having shellings and being bombed and attacked frequently 
when I talk with those guys, which I didn't really like in general, the people I didn't really appreciate, the speech was uh, a dogmatic speech about the importance to stay where they were, that was part of the political struggle, etc. But it was the first time that I could see the disconnect between the two speeches, between the civil part in Srebrenica and the others. At the time, it would have been potentially very easy to organize a displacement for the international, not for MSF, but for the UN and with agreement between all parties to organize a temporary corridor for people in Srebrenica to move into central Bosnia. That would have been feasible, organizable. It's obviously a big endeavor of moving, you know, thousands of people, but still possible. My rage was the fact that I couldn't get that through, whether because I was too exhausted to explain it clearly. I was obviously full of emotion, which I'm obviously with years, I'm more objective. But I remember that any conversation on that was saying it's not the mandate of MSF. We, we don't do this. We're not a political organization. This is about the peace process. We are, you know, that kind of typical dogmatic response you get at MSF um, came back strongly at the time on thinking out of the box. And where I was furious and where I'm still furious today is that I think we have missed being a humanitarian organization that looks at people's needs, people's needs were not about having medicine in the pharmacy by then, in February, March, April. It was about moving to gather with the rest of their family members, in what, whoever was left in central Bosnia. This is what the need was. And we didn't listen. At the same time, the relationship between the MSF team in Srebrenica and the local Bosnian Muslim civil authority that governed the city, the Obstina, comes under strain. The Obstina are demanding the resignation of an MSF logistician who's refusing to be corrupted. He was told that if he didn't join the Bosniak army, he'd be imprisoned. This dispute gradually extended to other members of MSF staff. MSF's field coordinator in Srebrenica, Graziela Godin, they were the ones who regulated all the humanitarian aid. But they were obviously strongly influenced by the Bosnian militias, and in fact, many of them were members of these militias. It was often difficult to tell the difference between civilians and militiamen. You could quite possibly have had people who were working with us and other humanitarian organisations by day, and who were militiamen by night. One day, the Obstina came to see us and asked us to release MSF personnel so that they could devote themselves entirely to the defence of the enclave. A number of employees had already left their positions with MSF, and this caused some big problems. So the relationship with Obstina was quite complicated around this issue. We understood what was at stake for them, but for us the most important thing was also to retain staff, especially medical staff, since they obviously didn't differentiate between medical staff and other staff in order for MSF to be able to continue to help and provide medical care to the 45,000 civilians in the enclave. In April, the Bosnian Serb authorities stop MSF from bringing new staff into the Srebrenica and Gorazde enclaves to replace their exhausted colleagues. The next month, Stefan Oberreit takes over from Eric Stobartz as general coordinator for the joint MSF Belgium France team. 
Well, we're coming out of the of the winter, and as uh, always, the tension was rising again with uh, some fighting. And indeed, the enclaves had not been able to rotate their personnel for quite a long time. So we had three expatriates in Srebrenica and two in Gorazde who had not been able to finish their mission on time because the Bosnian Serb authorities would only allow people out and would not allow people in. This was very hard because we had to ask them to stay when people had other plans or were feeling extremely tired from the fighting. And their morale was down, but you know we had to keep up their spirits um, by singing songs on the radio and trying to convince them that you know they couldn't leave before we had authorization to bring their replacement in. Stefan also visits the Bosnian Serb authorities in Palais. He spends three weeks there trying to negotiate the necessary authorizations for rotating personnel and bringing in supplies. So it was quite a strange atmosphere. You had those nice chalets that were part of uh, the setup of the Sarajevo uh, Winter Olympics, and uh, you know those huge bodyguards at the entrance. And you walk into uh, a room of the chalet and and start negotiating the situation in the in the enclaves. Uh, was with the authorities in Palais. The interlocutor was the vice president of the Republika Srpska, Professor Kolievich. Uh, university professor of uh, English literature in the University of Sarajevo. And he was a sort of acceptable interlocutor, as Karadzic was not seen as an acceptable interlocutor. Things were very complicated with him because, of course, he was trying to get deals on the the humanitarians and civilian side, but, of course, the military was uh, wanting to sort of uh, uh, not have any possibility to supply the enclaves because they were trying to strangle the enclaves. So the negotiation was quite complicated. It became surrealist at one point when he asked me to put him in contact with President Chirac of France, which I had to sort of answer no to, of course, because saying this is not at all our role and we're not supposed to be involved in any political negotiations. And anyway, I didn't have the private phone number of the president of France. While the negotiations continue at a local level, in the ski chalets in Palais, and at an international one at the UN in New York, in Srebrenica, the bombing carries on, and life for the thousands of Bosnian Muslims trapped there becomes impossible. By now, many have been imprisoned in the enclave for three years, with no clean water or proper sanitation. They have very little food, and are living in constant fear of the shelling. Many of the joint Belgium-French MSF team wonder how long both they and the population will last. It's starting to look like a question of when, not if, the enclave will fall. Next time on MSF Speaking Out, Srebrenica. We look at one of the toughest chapters of the Bosnian War, July 1995, the fall of Srebrenica. The concept of the enclave, what was the future, what was the exit strategy? Nobody really knew what was going to come. And would they really be protected like General Morillon promised in 93? Around 8,000 men and boys over the age of 16 are massacred by Bosnian Serb forces in the enclave. But how does this happen with hundreds of UN peacekeepers in a so-called safe zone? Having trusted Umprafor's commitment to protect the enclave and its population, must MSF accept partial culpability for, or complicity in, the UN's abandonment of the enclave in the ensuing massacre of the population, 
didn't MSF give the population the false impression that it would be safe as long as the team was present? And what mechanisms did MSF put in place so that they could speak out over the UN's inability to protect the people of Srebrenica? The MSF Speaking Out Srebrenica podcast is based on an original MSF study called MSF and Srebrenica 1993-2003, written by Laurence Binet. It's part of the Speaking Out case study series, a project by MSF International. This podcast series is produced and mixed by Andrea Rangecroft. Editorial direction is from Nancy Barrett, Martin Solinier, and Sandy McKee. The narrator is Nick Owen. The extracts are read by Daniela Belos-Stag and Matthew Wade. Music is by Lost Harmonies and Peter Sandberg. A special thanks to Dr. Ronnie Brahman, Dr. Graziella Diap, Graziella Godin, Stefan Oberreit, and Eric Stobarts. To read the full report and discover other case studies, please go to our website, msf.org/speakingout. Thanks for listening. <laughs>